Would you pray with me a second? More than a second. Father, thank you for this morning, for your word, for this true story that we're going through in Ruth. I pray, Lord, help us remember what you want us to remember. Change us in the ways we need to be changed. And may we walk away from our time together this morning with what you have for us, Lord. Put in our minds what you want there, Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. To love is beautiful, but it's also hard work at times. We talked about love as valuing and working for the best interest of someone. And we're supposed to do that for ourselves, to value, value ourselves. We love ourselves. We work for our own best interest. But we're also called to value and to work for the best interest of others. And to love like that, to love, is beautiful, but it's hard work. It's hard work because when we love others, it's centered not on ourselves, but on them. At the heart of love is sacrifice. At the heart of love is death, death to ourself in order to love someone else, and that's why at times we're allergic to it. <laughs> and at times our culture is allergic to what love really is. We're going through the book of Ruth, and we're calling it for our, for our series, A Case Study of Love. Because Ruth was an expert at selfless love. And expert performances can inspire us. And what, I, what my goal is for going through the book of Ruth is for us to see this case study of love, to be inspired by her love, to see the beauty of it, and most of all, to be drawn to the same God of love that she knew and served. I want to point out we have some stickers. Didn't forget to say it. We have some stickers in the front. Of, of this series of Ruth, and so I would encourage you, grab one, put it on your refrigerator, put it on your water bottle, put it somewhere you can remember um, in the next couple months as we go through the book. There's some jazzy stickers over there. All right, so what happened last week? We're in chapter one, verses eight through 18, so the first seven verses. Let me summarize it for you in a little background that I wrote up for you. Here's what it says. So last week we talked about how Naomi was living in a nightmare. She loses her husband, Elimelech, and she loses both of her sons. She remains with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, but she has no income, no protection, and no opportunity to continue her family line. She's left with the dead shell of a family outside of the promised land. Can she face such a loss? There seems to be no hope for her. All exits are closed. But in the darkness, there's a flicker of light, and Naomi heads towards Bethlehem after hearing the Lord had visited his people with food. So that's what we talked about last week in verses 1 through 7. Now we're going through verses 8 through 18 today, and here's the main idea of the verses we just heard read. With loss comes the chance to love. With loss comes the chance to love. And we see it in Naomi, first of all, we're going to talk about Naomi's opportunity to love her daughters-in-law in verses 8 through 14, and then secondly, Ruth's love for Naomi, her mother-in-law, in verses 15 through 18. 
Naomi's love for her daughters-in-law we see in verses 8 through 14. In verses 8 through 14, we see her command her daughters-in-law to return to Moab, and we see that's out of love. We see her confer a blessing on the two of them, on both her daughters-in-law, out of faith, driven in love. And then she counts the reasons of why they should return to Moab after they tell her, no, we're not going to go, we're going to stay with you. And she does that out of love, too. So first we see in verse 8 the command to return to their families. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, as they're following her back to Bethlehem, go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. So Naomi is well aware that her future looks grim, that she has little to no chance of having a future of hope, of security, of provision. It's a dark future for her. But she's not just thinking about her own future, she's thinking about the future of her two daughters-in-law. She knows that in many ways her life seems to be over, but she doesn't want the life of her daughters-in-law, of Orpah and Ruth, for their lives to be over. And so she tells them in verse 8, go return. Two commands, not just go. Go, return, like get out of here. Go back to where your families are. She's not negotiating. She's not trying to have a conversation of here are the pros and cons if you come with me or if you go back. Here's what's best for you. Go back to your families. She's trying to make it easier for them to go. All the while knowing, very good reason to believe, that in, from Naomi's perspective, the only good thing she has in her life right now are her two daughters-in-law. In the beginning of, of the book of Ruth, it points out that they had a good relationship. We're going to see it as the three of them, all three of them are crying together. The fact that Ruth and Orpah didn't want to leave their mother-in-law shows the kind of close relationship that they had. And so Naomi is giving up the only good thing now in her life in order to give them a better future, in order to give them hope. Naomi is taking on loneliness, poverty, hopelessness, and she's giving hope a possible future of love and security to her two daughters-in-law. You know, love is costly. <laughs> John 3.16, you've probably heard this verse before. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's, a great, it's the great exchange. Jesus takes our sins. He takes all of what our sins look like, the lies, the cheating, the unbelief, the pride, the cowardice, the sloth, the selfishness. He takes the wounds of the world and he gives. He gives life. He gives forgiveness. He gives adoption. He gives an inheritance. He gives a future. He takes death and he gives life. And in Naomi, in this decision she's making, to give her daughters-in-law an opportunity and a possible future by taking away from herself the only good thing she has left, she's showing us a smaller scale snapshot of the gospel. She tells them to return to their families and then she blesses them. In verses eight through nine, she, she confers a blessing. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So in these blessings, we see Naomi's faith. Yes, her life has been shattered, but her hope is alive. Her faith is alive. Her life has been crushed, but her faith is present. And we see it in these two blessings. A blessing, we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. What what does a blessing mean? But it's essentially calling down God's favor and goodness and activity into the lives of others. And that's what she does for her two daughters-in-law. She gives two blessings. May the Lord deal kindly with you. And then secondly, the Lord grant that you may find rest in the house of her husband. First, she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. That phrase, deal kindly, is a Hebrew word, hesed. It's a Hebrew word that's a two-part word of loyalty and love. This is covenantal-type language. This is the kind of love that God shows to his people. About two-thirds of the time, it talks about hesed. In the Old Testament, it's talking about God's love. The other third of the time, it's talking about the love people are showing to one another. It's the kind of love that God always shows, and it's the kind of love that we're supposed to show but don't always do. In fact, I would say more rarely show this kind of love. This is the kind of love, Hesed, that is a selfless, unconditional, one-way, uneven, unfair, independent, entirely based on the person the object of the person's love, and has nothing to do with the way that they respond back. You get a little picture of that kind of love? It's an unconditional kind of love. It's the kind of love when you tell someone that you love them, you are not waiting for the response back. You are not, you don't mean it only if they respond back with the words. You don't mean it only if they respond back with the actions. You're just giving it, period. That's the kind of love that's at the heart of Christianity. That's the kind of love that kept Jesus on the cross, though he could have come down, though he could have never gone there in the first place. That kind of love. And Naomi's saying, may the Lord do you hesed. Second blessing. The Lord grant that you may find rest in the house of her husband. She wanted for them what she knew she couldn't get at this point, which was a settled security, safety, provision for the rest of their life. And for them to get that in the world in which they lived, and at the time, a very male-dominated world, a world where a woman couldn't go out and get a job and provide for herself in that kind of way, the kind of world that some of us, when we hear that, we get mad, and that's fine. Don't worry, you'll get even more mad as we go through the book in certain parts. The Bible describes different parts of history and what was happening. It doesn't always mean it's endorsing and saying that's the way it should be. That's not what we're focusing on. What I want you to focus on is the way that these women interacted with the circumstances in which they lived. How did Ruth respond in this world? The Lord grant that you may find rest in the house of her husband. She wants to give them a a settled security. Naomi blesses them, and it shows us her faith is alive, even though her hopes and her dreams have been crushed. She tells them to return to their families. But then we're about to see Ruth and Orpah say, no thanks, we're going to go with you. 
And that forces Naomi's hand a little bit to increase her argument, to intensify what she's saying to them, out of love trying to give them a second chance. So we see that in verses 10 to 14. She counts the reasons why they should return to their families. Look at verse 10. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. That's what Ruth and Orpah said to Naomi. Then Naomi responds in verse 11, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. You see what's happening? Naomi is giving her two daughters-in-law these reasons of why it makes no sense for them to follow her back to Bethlehem. She gives these multiple reasons of why she can't provide for them the settled security, the hope, the future. She can't provide for them husbands. Why is there any expectation that she should provide for them husbands? There was something called Leverite marriage, in which when, when someone married someone and the, the male died, the expectation was the next oldest brother would marry the widow, which we could say a lot about that. One thing would be you'd be, have a lot more incentive for your sibling to marry the right person because that could be, <laughs> you're, you know, we're involved in this together. Like, are you sure you want to go with that guy? But what she's saying to Ruth and Orpah is, I can't do that. I have no other sons. She's saying in verse 11, I'm not pregnant. Like, listen to the reasons why you should go. I'm not pregnant. I'm too old to get married. Even, and here, here's where she gives three, even if these three miracles happened. Even if I was married tonight and got pregnant tonight <laughs> and had twin boys in my womb, even if all miracle upon miracle upon miracle happened, would you then wait for them to grow up and then get married? No, it doesn't make sense for you to follow me. Her future, her hope looked grim, but she wanted a second chance for her daughters-in-law. And so she recounts the reasons. And then in verse 13, she laments, no, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. It's possible that in thinking about her circumstances and thinking about her life, when she tells them all the reasons they should go, it reminds her of her own situation, and she gets upset, and she laments about it. It's her sincere assessment of the situation that she found herself in, and she laments. Is lamenting a, a healthy activity to do? Lamenting, crying out, talking about, saying, grieving, Doing that, is that a healthy activity to do? Yes. So why, why don't we do it? I know, I know we do sometimes, but in general, we're uncomfortable with it. In general, we're afraid to do it. Why is that? I want to give you three reasons. Two of them are, one of them is a good reason, and the other two not so much, okay? The first reason is that it's painful. It's not easy to talk about when life 
sucks, okay? Or when you think about when it, a difficult, painful situation in your past, sometimes it takes a lot of courage and bravery to even bring that up, and it can affect the person who brings it up and shares it even for days. I've seen that. It can be painful. So yes, that's a good reason at times that we don't want to lament. Even though at times it's, it's helpful for people to know us, to build relationships in the right situations and settings, to do that, to share our lives, what we've been through, what we're going through, to help other people maybe make a decision, to build trust, it's good. But we shouldn't push or expect each other to bring up some of the painful experiences of our past just because we want to hear about it. It might take the person courage to do it because it, it can be painful, that's real. And that is a reason we don't just jump to do it. So, okay, it's a good reason. But then there's two reasons that I think we need to talk about that aren't the best reasons. The second one is maybe we think it's disrespectful toward God. And there's some truth in that. But tell me, if you look through scripture and you look through all the different examples of the people of God getting in God's face, being honest with him, lamenting, crying out, frustrated, saying things like in Psalm 13, will you forget me forever, God? Are you listening? Are you awake? Look at the different things Jeremiah said in his journey, in his faith. He laments a lot. And I say it's mostly true, it's mostly wrong, that it's disrespectful. It can be. And I, I want to point out the example that I know, Jeremiah calls God a liar, and God says, repent of that. So it's not this free reign to just, you know, start going off on God and there's no boundary at all. I'm not saying that. But I think the very word Israel, the people of God, Israel means to wrestle with God, to strive with God. And if we're not doing that, there's something missing in our walk with the Lord. A third of the Psalms are lament Psalms. It's healthy, it's good, it's teaching us. Is it dis can it be disrespectful? It can be. But to just jump there and say, I'm not going to tell God how I feel and what's going on, or I'm not going to talk about it out loud, because that's not respectful. That's mostly, the, that's mostly wrong. Okay? And then thirdly, why, why don't we lament? Because we're affected more than we know, and someone said it in the service a little earlier, by stoicism, by Greek stoicism. So, and that's all wrong. So let me just, a little bit of what, what I'm talking about here. So... Maybe we don't lament because we're affected by the false idea that emotions are bad. That's wrong. Maybe we don't do it because we think the passionate person is immature, like the Stoics believes. Also wrong. This reason is entirely wrong, and we're affected by it maybe a little bit more than we think. We think the emotional person or the person that's passionate is, is somehow, like, they're probably not very intelligent. <laughs> Wrong. In fact, the strongest, most intelligent, most human person to ever live, it says in Hebrews 5, you know where I'm going with this, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, like consistently during his time in the world. He was known as the weeping prophet. Why? Because he never wept? Because he never showed emotion? No. <laughs> the strongest one, the most intelligent one. We're affected by stoicism more than we know, and we have to be aware of that in our own lives and address it. Some of the reasons why we're afraid to lament, but lamenting is healthy. 
What specifically was, was Naomi's lament? The Lord has gone out against me. The Lord has attacked me. That's specifically what her lament is. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Is that wrong? Was she wrong? The Lord has gone out against me. Her husband died. Both her sons died. Her future looks dark. The Lord has attacked me. Is she wrong? No and yes. <laughs> I get some of these notes from A Loving Life. It's an excellent commentary on, on Ruth, on the book of Ruth. Is she wrong? No. She's not wrong in the sense that she's honestly assessing the situation in which she's in, and she believes that God is in complete control of everything, and she's right about that, including the circumstances happening in her life. He's in control of the movement of the stars, of every molecule, of everything that happened a month ago all over the world. He's also completely in control of every single detail of my life. And Naomi believed that. And so when she finds herself in this situation, she knows God's in control. And so why is he doing this? She wants to know why. If she didn't have any faith, she wouldn't be crying out against God. She wouldn't do it. She would try to blame something else. Oh, it just, this is just the way life is. This is just fate. This is because whatever. But she addresses the Lord. And so she's not wrong in that sense. But yes, she's wrong in another way, in a specific way. Her specific statement is that God is against her, and that's not true. Yes, God's in complete control, but no, he's not against you, Naomi. He's working in your life. And if, you stop, if we stop to judge God based on a moment or a season of our life, right now, if you stopped and you said, God, you are like this, and this is, what I, th this is happening in my life, and there can be no good reason for that, and we try to judge God based on our, it's really funny when you think about it, <laughs> such limited experience, the oldest among us, the most experienced, the most wise, compared with the infinite God, we're going to judge him based on where we are at in life right now when he's the beginning and the end and knows all things. No, he was not against her. He was, as it says in the commentary, weaving a spectacular tapestry, and this is just the beginning. All right, so the conversations after, after the lament, the conversation ends with crying, conceding, and clinging, crying because they cared about each other, and a big change was about to happen as Orpah left. That's where the conceding came in. Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, listens to her mother-in-law and goes back to Moab, back to her family. But then Ruth clings to Naomi. Verse 15. As Ruth is clinging to Naomi and Orpah's walking back to Moab, Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. It's this last-ditch effort for Naomi after recounting all the reasons why she should go, after explaining this is the logical reasons, it makes no sense to come with me, and Ruth is still clinging there as her sister's walking away, her sister-in-law. She's saying, look, Orpah's done the sensible thing, follow her. 
You know, maybe a little bit of peer pressure here. But look what she says. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So here's the first sign of some weakness in Naomi's faith. Here's one of the reasons I've harped on her on the past and maybe had too dim of a view of her. Faith wasn't perfect. She makes a mistake. This is bad evangelism. Don't tell someone, you know, when life gets hard, go back to whatever you were doing before and whatever you used to worship before that. It's, a, it's, it's some weakness in her faith. It's bad evangelism. Don't do that. <laughs> but in a moment of weakness, what she thought was best for Ruth, even though she wanted to go back to Bethlehem with her, she tells her, follow after your sister-in-law. But notice it says, after her gods, as if, as in Orpah's gods, as if maybe Naomi's already aware that Ruth's god is not the gods of Moab. With loss comes the chance to love. We see the example of Naomi's love for her two daughters-in-law, trying to give them a second chance and hope for a future, even though her own future looked grim and dark. Next we see another opportunity, another chance to love, and it's Ruth's love to Naomi in verses 16 through 18. And in 16 through 18, we see Ruth seal her fate, and we see Ruth stun to silence her mother-in-law, Naomi. In verses 16 through 17, she seals her fate, and it says in the, in the commentary, I love this, Ruth's poetic response has set 30 centuries trembling. Ruth's poetic response has set 30 centuries trembling, and it's true. Here's what she said. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more so if anything but death parts me from you. Is that not beautiful? She's committing herself to Naomi. And we laid it out in pairs up here. They increase in commitment the further she goes. These six commitments she gives to her mother-in-law. You can tell these words are thoughtful. This is not a spur-of-the-moment, emotional, in-the-heat-of-the-moment commitment. This is specific. She's thought about this. There's reasons behind this, and we're going to see there's faith behind her words. She commits her life to her mother-in-law for the long haul, and it was an incarnational type of promise, type of commitment. I'm with you, is what she says. We see it in those first four commitments. Where you're going, I'm going. Where you live, I live. She's with her for the rest of her life, that's the commitment. She might not be able to solve all of her problems. She might not always have the right answer. She might not always have a quick fix. But she's with her. Tell me if I'm wrong, not out loud, <laughs> later if you want. The people in your life that have made the biggest impact are those that are with you. It's usually not the person who steps in for a week or a month, but are with you for the long haul, that, that are just committed, and they show it. What Naomi needed was lifelong physical health, help and companionship. She had no one to give it, and Ruth says, I'll do it. 
Ruth had said essentially that her life was over and Ruth says, no, it's not. My life's over. Do you see what she's doing? Where is that strength coming from? Where is that commitment coming from? And I believe the answer is faith in God. Because we see it in, ver in Commitments 5 and 6, where she says, where you die, I will die, there I will be buried. So Ruth's faith in God has led to a, an over-the-top, more than you could ever expect or ask somebody type of commitment to Naomi. And we see here that that commitment is coming from not just a Ruth looking at Naomi and saying, you are my life, I'm with you until the end because I care about you. While that's true, the commitment that she said, if you die in Bethlehem, I'm staying there, is telling her, even after you're gone, I'm not going back to Moab. I'm staying in the promised land, I'm worshiping the true God, I'm not going back. Her identity was found in the Lord. Her faith was in the Lord. And that allowed her to make that kind of commitment to somebody else. The cost of this decision that she made seems unparalleled in Scripture. Find another example of somebody who went to this kind of length to love and to care and to serve the interests of somebody else. Find somebody. Other than Jesus. <laughs> In the word biblical commentary, there's a quote from an author named Tribal, and he says this about Ruth. Ruth stands alone. She possesses nothing. No God has called her. No deity has promised her blessing. No human being has come to her aid. She lives and chooses without a support group, and she knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection, indeed of death. Consequently, not even Abraham's leap of faith surpasses this decision of Ruth. And there's more. Not only has Ruth broken with family, country, and faith, but she's also reversed sexual allegiance. A young woman has committed herself to the life of an old woman rather than to the search for a husband. One female has chosen another female in a world where life depends upon men. There is no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel. She's going way above and beyond what anyone would ask or expect of her to do in this situation. To lay down her life for this older woman that was in need. There was no place for Naomi to go. There was no family care center or something. She lays down her life, this incarnational commitment to be with her, this sacrificial love, way beyond what's expected of her. Can I ask a question? If you're moved at all by that, and not just by this example, why are we so moved by sacrificial love? Have you ever just thought about that question? <laughs> Can you think of anything more beautiful, more inspiring, more worthy of our lives 
than sacrificial love? Why is it the climactic part of so many of our stories, of so many of the books and the movies that captivates us? Why is it? How come the buildup in Avengers, for example, is building up to the point where I'm not even going to say it, even though it's been three years, some of you might get mad at me later if I say who did it, but one of them lays down their life in sacrifice, dying, in order to save others, specifically half of the population. <laughs> and it's, so be it's the, it's the buildup, it's the climax of the, of the whole story. Why is sacrificial love so beautiful? You know, the Avengers aren't real. <laughs> but Ruth is. And her smaller scale decision of, again, of the gospel is pointing to another person who's real, and that's Jesus, who didn't just die for half the population to bring them back so they can die again some point later, but who lived his whole life in selfless love and sacrificially died to rescue the whole world. All people, all nations, the opportunity to receive life. His, his death didn't just, it's not just beautiful, but it gives life and it creates a community. It's why we're here. His life, death, and resurrection, he created the church. He, it looks like he's, he's indirectly quoting Ruth when he tells Mary Magdalene after the resurrection, I'm ascending. Because of what he just did, his death, his life, his death, sacrificial death, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Because of what he did, he's created a community in which we are children of God, in which the, the church, the people that are called by his name, who know his unconditional, one-way, uneven, unfair love given freely, that when we turn from our sins, believe in him, we become part of this community in which we are called, though we do it imperfectly, though we don't do it nearly as well, for example, as Ruth does, but we're called to show that kind of one way, I'm going to care about you no matter how you respond to me. And it's beautiful. And that kind of love can sometimes leave us speechless. That's what it does for Naomi. She's stunned to silence in verse 18. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. <laughs> so we have the two of them now walking back to Bethlehem. And after Ruth just gave this beautiful, poetic, six-layered commitment that parallel each other, that increases in commitment all the way down, this beautiful, my life, you're not, your life's not over, mine is. Naomi's stunned. She doesn't respond. She doesn't say thank you. Maybe she didn't need to. But again, this kind of love is not demanding a response. It's simply given. And God knows that better than anyone. He gives his life to a people that don't deserve it, and that often don't appreciate it after it's given to them. <laughs> and he does it over and over and over again. All right. Love is beautiful, but it's hard work at times. 
It involves being centered and focused not just on ourselves but on others. Sacrifice and death to self are at the heart of love and we do it no matter how people respond. Now, I, I have to give a little, I feel like I have to give a little caveat here. Some people may use the book of Ruth or may use commitments like this or examples like this to tell somebody, look, you're supposed to love me like that no matter what. And I need a little caveat here. If you have any, if you have even a little inclination that maybe you're in some kind of relationship that you are consistently putting yourself in harm's way, whether that's physical, spiritual, emotional type of abuse, that's not what we're endorsing here. And please talk to somebody about it, let somebody know about it so we can address it. If you don't want to tell me in person, you can email me, tori at terranovachurch.org, T-O-R-Y at terranovachurch.org. As a family, we want to know about those things and help it. God's not calling us to, to intentionally put ourselves in dangerous situations. Some people use this, these kinds of messages and beautiful, to, to, to endorse things like that or make people think that they need to stay in dangerous relationships. Caveat, caveat done. Naomi doesn't yet see that God is answering her prayers through the person standing right next to her, through Ruth. May we be the kinds of believers, the kind of church that God uses to answer prayers, to step into people's lives, and to show God's love that we can't muster up on our own, that God provides. Pray with me, please. Father, it's, loss does create the chance to love. It creates the chance to love others. It creates the chance for others to love us. And God, I pray, as we heard about this kind of commitment that Ruth made, I pray that it inspires. I pray, Lord, I pray even that we don't for now think about what are the kinds of, what are the ways that I can love others, but instead just, just step back and be in awe. To see the beauty of laying down one's life for somebody else. Not just at one time, not just one event. but a life of that, and let it draw us to Jesus, to your son. Who lived a life of real love, who died in love, who created a community through his resurrection and through his love.
Thank you, God, we get the chance to walk with you, to glean from you, that the love of your spirit's been poured out in our hearts. Let us show it, and let us see it in one another. And may it draw many more into your family.